Theatrical Shenanigans presents The Panel Presents with DC Cathro, Angela Sarabia, Sam Heyman, Susan Jackson. Hello there, and welcome to our October instalment of The Panel Presents. For those not familiar with the show, it consists of me, your host, Rachel Feeney Williams, and four brilliant panellists from various parts of the arts world and indeed corners of the globe, discussing issues relating to theatre. So let's meet the fabulous four for this episode, shall we? My first panellist is an award winner, courtesy of Bay Area Theatre Critics Circle Award for Best Original Play, as well as being a finalist and winner of other awards. She also has a production history that spans the globe, as well as being a member of a Dramatist Guild of America, a resident playwright with the Three Girls Theatre Company, and runs her own group, the Southern Railroad Theatre Company. So a very busy guest who I'm thrilled could find time to join us. Welcome, Susan Jackson. Thank you. (laughs) My second panellist hails from Chicago and comes equipped with the titles of playwright, actor and director. His works have been performed at theatres and festivals across the US and UK, and he's the only playwright to have two shows in Pride Film and Play Festivals in Chicago, Illinois. Coupling that with having won festivals, having an off-Broadway production, and multiple published works available in print, I am glad he could find time to join us. Welcome, DC Cathro. Hello. Our third panellist has been involved in theatre for an extensive period of time, that being her entire adult life. Not being satisfied with just writing, she's been involved in every aspect of putting shows together, including performance, directing, stage managing, producing and writing for the stage. She fills up her time by running a playwrights workshop, being a board member of Ritchie Suncoast Theatre, and if all that wasn't enough, she is also an attorney currently homeschooling three children. Please welcome the very busy Angela Sarabia. Hi, it's nice to be here. And my final panellist is a queer Jewish writer and former educator based in Nashville, Tennessee. Since graduating, he has continued to cultivate his writing, taking several workshops with the Porch Writers Collective and attending the C1E Writers Conference as a contributing playwright in 2021. In 2022, he was selected as a playwriting fellow for the Lombarda Literary Writers Retreat for Emerging LGBTQ Voices. And at the moment, he's currently hard at work revising a novel. So, a fourth very busy panellist. Please welcome Sam Heyman. Hey, happy to be here. (laughs) Okay. So, as always, we start with a question for all of you. Um, What do you see as the most prominent reason you got involved in the theatre or the arts? And we'll start with Susan. My mother. Uh, She was always interested in cultural things, and she got me involved as an actress at the age age of 16 mm-hmm. and instead of getting the beautiful princess I was cast as the witch <laughs> and that sort of set up my reality for the next 50 years um, uh, but actually th- that is partly true but I think the most prominent reason was because theater uh, transforms things it transformed things for me and um, I have been in love with it ever since and I love watching how it it um affected my students when I taught theater. So yeah, it's the greatest, it's the greatest thing in the world. DC, what about you? Um, My whole family has always been sort of drawn to the arts. My mom was a writer and my dad was a photographer and I, I was more into visual arts all through college. And then I started hanging out with the acting crowd. Um, And I got the bug and I worked for many years as an actor. And then I 
shifted into playwriting about eight or ten years ago. Uh, Angela. Um, I just I believe that we all have this creative drive inside of us and we're all good at some kind of art form. But I got on the stage for the first time and I was like, this is all I want to do. It just lit me up. So I acted for many years and then I would just get frustrated by the limitations of like female roles I was getting was often like the damsel in distress that needs to be rescued and comedies. It was like the cute airhead or the, you know, mean yeah. ex-wife or something. And I wanted to make more roles where women got to do amazing things and drive the plot and stuff. So that kind of led me wanting better stuff to do is what led me into writing, but I loved it. I love making my own dialogue, making the actors uh, have great things to say to each other. So it kind of one thing naturally led to another that way. Uh, and finally, Sam. Yeah. So I got into playwriting after getting into acting really in middle school and high school, kind of by chance there was, there were a couple of people who had to drop out of a play and the director was like, hey, you've been in a play before with no speaking lines. Do you want to be in this play? And <laughs> so I did that, loved it, kind of got into it throughout the rest of high school. And then by college, I was starting, I was, I had been writing the entire time fiction, but playwriting really, really kind of, kind of bit me, made me, made me want to create my own stories and realize my own visions. And I think that a big thing about playwriting that has always kind of got it head and shoulders above for me is kind of the immediate the immediate feedback that you get from an audience mm. um not necessarily like having a conversation but just oh that joke really landed or though that moment really like it happened but it wasn't just me that made that moment happen and so getting to work with other people and see the things that I am creating impact other people emotionally mentally um, it's been really rewarding. It's something that I've continued to carry through as I've continued working in the theater. So first question goes out to uh, Sam. What do you think are the key factors that make making a living in the world of theater or playwriting difficult? I think some main factors that have impacted me um, are location and proximity to being able to network. So there are some people for whom getting getting work up on its feet is fairly straightforward. You have a theater in your area that you have a good relationship with, or you are in an, an environment where there is just a huge amount of work that is being produced, new development opportunities, all these different things available to you. And then you sit in Nashville, Tennessee, and there's things that you want to do, and there's work that is being done by local organizations, but there aren't as many organizations interested in developing new works by local writers. That's just my experience for me. Mm -hmm. um, I know that some people find that not necessarily having to be geographically located near any particular place, you can submit to theaters all over, that can help. Obviously, the finances of all of that, places, requesting submission fees or not paying honorariums or just having it be such a meager thing that on the off chance that you even get anything you may not even get paid what anything close to what you're worth so there's there's geographical and financial barriers that I think are going to vary from person to person but I think that in a lot of ways the the kind of pockets of places that are really highly densely populated by playwrights and directors and, and theater organizations 
they artists that are in those places also struggle but when you're kind of out on your own and you don't necessarily have a, a proximity of of organizations close to you it's it's difficult to really get your footing and that's that's what i've found in my experience no it, it, for me it's the same over here in the uk because you i'm based out in the in the wilds of devon and kind of outside of london or the big cities it's kind of I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's much more difficult. Um, and that's one thing I've discovered about speaking to a lot of American playwrights is I always um, associated with the only places that you can get plays published if you're an unknown writer is um, New York or LA because they are big enough to be mm -hmm. able to support people. But the number of people I've spoken to from all over the US who've had stuff done, it's, it's eye-opening and it's interesting. For me, anyway. Well, I mean, I don't know any playwrights who make their living just mm -hmm. writing plays. I and I don't know any playwrights who know a playwright who just make their living writing <laughs> plays. Um, you know, even in acting, at least over here, like it's like ten percent or five percent of the union actors over here make their living just acting, and ninety-five percent of the people in the union don't. And I think it's even less for playwrights. You know, unless you know you're Neil Simon or somebody. Yes. Yeah. You know, everybody I know works and writes because that's what they want to do. Well, it's kind of like act uh, theater actors. Um, they do movies to make to support their theater, their live stage work. Hmm. Um, I don't know what would be comparable for playwrights, um, except perhaps to write novels, you know, and sell novels, but. Uh, yeah, so you you know you make. I mean, I got a check for two hundred fifty dollars, and to me that was like a million. <laughs> um, uh, but the validation I think doesn't necessarily come in the money, no. unless yeah, it comes in um, other ways. So I, I'm like DC. I don't know anybody who's making any money uh, or making a living being a playwright. We we do it for love and, and hopefully we have people who can support us. <laughs> if you are in playwriting for the money, you are not in the right place. <laughs> I mean, I always say it's a constant hustle. It, mm -hmm. it, half of the playwriting is hustling. You have, to, I spend more time submitting and sending stuff out and into the world than I do writing. Um, Cause you have to. Unless you have the fortune of being a resident playwright. I have a friend who's a resident playwright and they always do one of her plays. I don't know if she's actually making a living, but she's, it's not bad. But I think that goes so. back to what Sam said earlier about having an organization in your community who has that level of, of faith in you that we're willing to say, mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're our playwright as it were. Um, because so those 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 gigs, as it were, are, are few and far between, and you do have to make a lasting impression to get into them in the first place. But I think it's it's like you said, um, DC. If you're in this for the money, you're you're in this for the wrong reasons. So, Sam, final kind of thought. I think that although I can't say that every single industry has all the support that it needs to really flourish, I think that we're finding that. A lot of the things that we considered institutions have only been able to be successful because people have fought for them to be in that way. I think like the dramatist guild is great. It is not enough. I think that there are a lot of playwrights 
lot of artists in the theater industry that are struggling primarily because we are in a country that doesn't value the arts in the way that other countries do. And it is not something that we're investing in nearly to the extent that I think we should. Angela, do you feel that theatre still has a role in affecting change in our society or has it drifted more into purely for entertainment value? Um, I definitely, it has been eye-opening to like now in my new role as president of the local community theater that I in the past have just acted in. Now I can see from the business side that you have to bring the entertainment to the audience to keep that theater going as a business. But mm -hmm. I think there's always going to be a place in uh, every single community theater for affecting that change. So I think a lot of times um, it just depending on what kind of environment you're in, like where I am in Florida, um, the population that comes to see the things at the theater skews way older. And so those folks, they like consistency, they like certain things. So you have to give them a lot of what they're used to, but they're willing to entertain new stuff. But I just think like everyone's afraid to jump out. So um, the another theater that I work with, I've started to convince them to do at least one original show every season. And it can be the tail end of the season. It could just be for one weekend. You're not spending any money on rights. A lot of times authors just want to see their work put up. So um, the first one they did, I think, just because I begged them and they were trying to be nice. But they saw a little money float in. The sky didn't fall. You know, it worked. And so now, um, then the, just this past year, we did it again. We picked somebody else's original work. We did it. It made a little more money. And I also think you have to kind of create build it and they will come sort of thing. So mm. every year we're going to continue to do this one weekend where we do something original. And I think after a while, the community is going to start to anticipate it. And in the process of that original work, that's where you start to see the change making works. I mean, most of us who are writing uh, from our passion as playwrights, we have at least one or two shows we've written because we want to make a point about where society's at or where we think it should be. It just, it's hard for it to be the full bread and butter of a theater's existence mm. because those big shows that we all know and love I'm thinking of big musicals like Chicago or um you know Annie get your gun or something we they want to see that we've got to keep bringing that so I just think it takes balance but when you have it feels like we're more polarized in the United States now than we've ever been and I'm sure it's that way in England and everywhere else every time you try to talk to somebody about society politics it feels like a lot of times they've already got their walls up, but mm -hmm. when they come in and they've got their glass of wine and the lights go down, they're open and willing to hear what you have to say mm -hmm. in a way that's not true in any other forum. So mm -hmm. I think theater's always going to have a place in getting people to uh, entertain something new. It's just that we have to be really smart about how we do it. Mm. The business strategy when it comes down to it. Which is, which is an annoying phrase to use when it's referring to something, something creative, but unfortunately, it is the way of the world, sadly. There are some of the classics that, you know, do still deal with subjects that we're dealing with today. West Side Story, for example, yeah. is it boils down to it's, a, it's all about racism. Mm. And so it's it's got the message and it's got the sort of notoriety and and following that you know theaters can get away with that it's the it's trying to put the message 
and a vehicle that will appeal to people, specifically the people who need to see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the tricky part. Yeah. San Francisco Playhouse, uh, the two highest selling shows, and, and they uh, were Clue and A Chorus Line. Hmm. And uh, they started off as a company that wanted to do classics but also wanted to break barriers but I, I don't all of a sudden their seasons are now very much entertainment oriented and very few um out of the boat um plays so I'm wondering if perhaps they're trying to they're dealing with the fact that these other plays that were and this is the bay area for god's sake you know but um and some of the some of the theater companies that broke barriers and broke ground have gone out of business mm. because they can't be supported because it's so expensive to do everything. So it's a it's a it's a real dilemma. Um, you know, do you like Angela said, you need to support your quote unquote support your base, bring in your base, but how far do you challenge them? Will they stop coming? Or you know, it's it's a real fine distinction in terms of getting your company to survive. But then to a lot of small companies folded during COVID, mm -hmm. but now that we're sort of past COVID, the smaller companies are the ones that are actually doing better. The larger companies like the Steppenwolf and, and the, the big powerhouses are the ones struggling because ticket prices and attendance and they, you know they need to fill their houses. Whereas if you have a hundred seat theater, you can, that's a lot easier to fill than a, you know, an 800, 1200 seat theater with ticket prices that, you know, and not everybody can afford Hamilton. And so the bigger houses are the ones that are struggling now. The smaller ones that survived COVID are the ones that are actually, you know, mm. on more solid ground than you would expect mm. these days. Absolutely. And I think part of that is the post-COVID thing is kind of this old thing of in order to keep it going, you have to keep your base happy, but you got to continue to bring those new people in. What do they want? They want to see something that challenges them. They want to see something that speaks to the world they live in. So it's got to be a balance. And I think that's something that a smaller theater can do more nimbly um, than a larger theater sometimes. Um, that's where black boxes can be a big deal. So, hmm. you know, in our local theater, we have a smaller forum thing. We can do more avant-garde challenging the norms in that smaller space but the other i mean the other thing is going back to what susan said um about can't be supported to throw a cat amongst the pigeons sometimes you feel like it's not necessarily can't but won't because depending on what you're performing businesses sometimes will obviously exercise their right not to support a certain establishment if they are doing plays with certain topic values involved and I've seen, I have seen it before where um, businesses sponsored a theatre for many, many years. And then the one time they decided to do something that's a little mm -hmm. bit out there, they they backed away. They pulled their, they pulled their funding completely. Um, and I think part of it, may, that may be the part of the problem, is that plays that do affect change are sometimes hard to look at and are considered again air quotes out there um and it's difficult to get sponsors and funding and that kind of thing so they never see they end up never seeing the light of day there's also really connected to that whether it's advertisers or if it's just 
negative word of mouth. Theaters don't want to attract negative attention, even if no. some might say pre- like any press is good press, but not necessarily. I mean, that's the worst thing as well, is that you do get, there is a certain amount of hate involved in what we do, sadly. It's become much more commonplace just in, in as a culture, mm. at least over on this over on this side of the pond anyway <laughs> I, I, which um I, I don't know how it is over there but it, it's just the whole zeitgeist uh, has just shifted so drastically and so quickly and hopefully you know the pendulum will swing back but mm. like right now you know the with cancel culture etc cetera, etc cetera, it's just it's you never know who's going to crawl out of the woodwork and for what reason. And a lot of people just hide behind, you know, the anonymity of the internet. Yeah. So uh, luckily a lot of people are starting to, you know, give them, you know, no notice because if they can't even say it to your face, then why bother thinking about it? Okay. Angela, final thought. Yeah, I think, um, I was just thinking about what you're saying about authors. I mean, writing involves vulnerability. I mean, the first time I put pen to paper and wrote my first play, I was terrified because I was talking about hard things, saying something about hard things. And I I thought, you know, gee, what are people going to think? And we have to be vulnerable to be writers. And so I know we all have to have thick skins for, for feedback from audience members, that instantaneous feedback that I think Sam was saying he was drawn to the theater for is great and terrible at the same time. But we don't want to ever be chilled in our speech and not say what we want to say because we're concerned we might offend. Um, That's up to our audiences. But I think um, if each of us try in our own way to expand our local theater's notions of what audiences will and will tolerate, generally speaking, audiences are very generous uh, to think about something new and try something new. And we just need to continue to push for that because if theater just continues to do the same things and nothing original and nothing pushing that envelope, eventually it's going to become irrelevant and die. And we don't want that. So I would say we got to keep pushing us, pushing our audiences out of their comfort zone and we'll eventually be rewarded for that. DC, a lot of people would associate playwriting as a solo activity, but how important do you think collaboration or indeed mentorship can be to a playwright? Well, I'm glad we're moving on to a happier topic. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yes, playwriting is sort of a solitary activity, but it's also, um, it's therapeutic in many ways. You know, it's, you get to, get all of these sort of emotions and thoughts and stuff out of your head and onto paper. There's nothing I I like writing more than a play that makes somebody cry. Mm. When I can make somebody cry, that is my golden spot. That's what I strive for. I love making people cry, Mm. Um, which is terrible to say out loud, but it's true. Um, But the thing is, um, and again, I, I hate to do go back to COVID, but the one thing COVID did, like right now, the five of us, we're in Chicago, we're in Florida, we're in San Francisco, we're in the UK, we're in Tennessee, and we are all sitting here together talking about something that we all love. Mm-hmm. And this would not have happened before COVID, or it might have, but it's become so much more of 
a norm now. And there are so many groups and and collectives of playwrights now that are so supportive and so giving and so loving and generous. And, you know, there, I, I, I could list a dozen groups that I've worked with, you know, just to have readings or just talk about things or just, you know, lift people up. And, you know, we want to hear what you're working on. We want to hear about your successes. Um, and also, I also work on musicals. So that is a little bit more of a collaborative thing. I work with a couple composers uh, on musicals. Um, and so it's not entirely always solitary, but it is very unusual to have a play these days anyway, written by more than one person, which um, it used to be a lot more common. Um, like I guess like in the fifties, but currently it's, it's, it's very much a solo activity. Um, but as far as mentorship goes, I, through these groups, I've had people reach out to me and say, you know, would you mind taking a look at this play? Would I would love for your feedback or what do you think about this? And I love that. I love being, if I can be of use to somebody, I think, you know, the more we lift each other up, the better we are as a whole. So um, if you're a playwright writing in a vacuum, I think you're missing out on a lot of really great opportunities mm. and you're missing out on a lot of really great ways to interact with your peers and audiences, honestly. I I have, a, I have a thought about that. So um, I find it to be very solitary when I begun to write. I wrote something and then got stuck. So I got a bunch of actors together and I was like, we need to read this. I need to hear it. And actors were so generous. They love the opportunity to read something they've never read before and throw themselves into it. And it just made like a million ideas happen in my head. So in my process of writing like a full thing play was I would write for a few weeks, put it on the shelf. I'd have a date certain bring bring the actors cookies whatever we'd read it again i'd record it and listen to it over and over and then more ideas more ideas so it was this ongoing collaboration no one was writing but i would write a line that i thought was just exactly right for like say a male character then this excellent male actor i knew would deliver the line and it didn't sound right that's not how guys talk so then it made me review the line so in that way workshopping it constantly throughout the writing process was critical i don't think i would have come up with the whole play if i hadn't done that mm -hmm. so i mean everybody's got a different process but i highly recommend didn't cost me a dime actors i knew were thrilled to come out and do it and just happy to be thought of and asked but it's like it's part of my life now because when I heard actors read something I'd written for the very first time, I told somebody it was like I drew a pencil sketch and watched it get up and walk around. It was the most amazing experience. And I wanted every author to have that experience. And we do it all the time now. Yeah. If you work with a, a dramaturg early on and you, um, the three girls theater company, not only did, did I have to have a dramaturg, which is fine, but we would have readings with the actors and director and they were all, they would all put their input mm. into it. So it was a really it. nice collaborative effort. And then it would have another, an, another reading. And then we would have the talk back. Oh, and my God, don't we love the talk back? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but it gave a chance to have an audience respond and say what they liked, say what they missed. So hmm. yeah, it's it's a it's solo, but it's also you can also turn it into like Angela has and and so on and DC into a wonder and Rachel into a collaborative effort that usually can only help. I think mm. at the very beginning of the pandemic, when I first started of kind of attacking playwriting with more vigor, because essentially I had you know nothing else to do, um, I discovered uh, a challenge which was done by the uh, some of the literary challenge, and it was called Twenty Eight Plays Later. And basically you write a play a day based on a brief that they set. And they had a community page where you could, if you wanted to, post the plays for public reading. And I used to love doing that. And I think I did it every day purely on the basis that I had some, something to answer to. Because it's very mm -hmm. easy as a creative to go, no, I don't feel like it today. <laughs> I actually got to do 28 plays later this year for the first time yeah. and Rachel you were doing a dev and we had a bunch of people that were all participating throughout the month and it was I've I've done I mean I did end of play end of play for the second time done by the dramatist guild um this April I've done national novel writing month like writing challenges like that really work for me mm. um 28 plays later was was the first time that I'd written that volume of individual stories uh, individual pieces yeah in that amount of time um and it was very it was a very stretching experience but I don't think that I would have been able to do that in complete isolation I think that so much of the community that you get just little kind of pats on the back for something that you were like you know what I'm not sure if this is working and then someone's like this is pure magic and you're like oh my gosh I don't know how much I needed that um but definitely want to echo a lot of what's been said I mean DC and I got connected through an online playwriting group and I I'm so grateful to have been introduced to that community and to continue to get to work with them um it's kind of stoked some fires of my own kind of theater leadership I've gotten to produce uh reading series this year of different different colleagues full-length plays and giving them feedback and also just getting to read and listen to so many other writers that have been doing this a lot longer than me. And I think that, that those those opportunities to connect with other artists, whether they are actors in a reading or a dramaturg or, or directors that are taking your piece and doing something with it, like that's that's a it's a great part of the the work of being a playwright that I feel like fiction writers might have editors, they might have a workshop that they're a part of, but it it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same energy to it of just we want to make your piece better and we're going to help you figure that out however we can shout out to sam by the way he produced a reading of one of my plays earlier this year and it is going to be produced next year in reno for the first time Red so um yeah so i'm working <laughs> on the i'm working on the rewrites now from that reading <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's going back to what you said, DC, about, about um, community. I'm reminded of something uh, Dana Hall said. Um, you can't shine bright by using someone else's kindling. And she was, she, I mean, she was right then and she's right now. You, you can't, as a creative, attacking other people or putting other people down is never the answer. Um I know sometimes people say that the world of theatre or the world of film and it's cut is cutthroat, but I mean, 
that may be the difference between like entirely professional and not but I've never known anyone in any of the communities that I've been a part of um be that way as far as I'm well, I think <laughs> you've started you've started a community of your own uh, mm. I mean you are one of the hardest working people in showbiz on Facebook at least <laughs> yeah. so. I can sleep when I'm dead it's fine <laughs> shout out to you too yeah. Like we were talking about, the, the playwriting world is tiny. We've all interconnected in some way. Mm. Like Angela and Susan, Susan saw one of my plays a decade ago in Kansas. You know, <laughs> how weird is that? Angela and Susan were talking about uh, Lisa Friend and Dana Hall before we even started. And I was literally just chatting with them this morning on, on Messenger. And so, you know, everybody in some way is gonna be connected to everybody else. It's a whole six degrees mm. um, thing. And so, you know, there's no, there's nothing to gain by trying to horn other people out. No. At all. There's no, there's no all you're gonna do is alienate people when we were just talking about all of the wonderful aspects of this community that we've all built together. You know, we're all doing something that we love. We are all doing something that drives us and each other. And we, you know, the more we support that, the better everybody has been. In my mind, you may not be remembered for the things you did, but as far as other people are concerned, you will always be remembered for the way you treated people. So, yeah. Do you see final thoughts? Yes. If anybody out there is not part of any sort of playwriting group, I that I would definitely encourage you to go find your peers, your tribe, as some people put it, you know, and just, ex you know, the more you exchange ideas, the more you exchange your talents, it's only going to make you better. It's only going to improve you just as much, if not more so than you're improving them. Yeah. Um, and we're we all want the same things and we should applaud it when even if you don't get into that festival you should applaud the people that do because that's their dream coming true keep working on yours you'll get there eventually okay uh susan in a world where we're seeing more and more submissions and opportunities limited to certain groups be that by gender by race by sexual preference do you see this as more of a help to playwrights or a hindrance? Well, I've thought about this a lot because, uh, you know, now there's a great emphasis on, a greater emphasis on female playwrights. So in a way I benefit from that. Um, but I, I, I actually find it a little bit more beneficial than a hindrance because it, it sets the limitations. Mm. It's their theater company, they can do what they want. How I feel about it personally may be subjective and emotional, but they're doing what they need to do. And um, it just immediately says, this is what we're looking for. If you are this, if you can comply with this, fine. If not, don't bother. Mm -hmm. um, and that's their choice. That's their company. That's their spirit. And um I'm not going to change their politics or their social perception by sending them. Well, I don't, I don't agree with you. And here, here you know, and here's my great play about blah blah blah. Um, it's not going to change their perspective. Uh, it might cause a conversation, but, but I, it, I, again, I'm 
being female, I, I think I, I'm at somewhat of an advantage and being an older female, they're lo looking for a lot of theater companies are looking for plays about older people, older women, written by older women. So in a way I might, I might benefit more than others, let's say, but uh, sometimes it is frustrating because sometimes you go, but my play is so perfect for what you need, but I don't fill that um, identity. Mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes it can create a conversation, but sometimes it's obvious that you can't win. Mm -hmm. um, but at least you know that up front and you go looking for the people who are interested in, in what you're writing. There was one uh, group I won't name the theater company that were look that had a, a, a women's festival and you had to enter blind blind submission, mm -hmm. and she sent out a notice email notice telling me my play was not selected and then she posted the winners of the women's festival and every play was written by a man, so I, I sent her a note back I said doesn't it seem a bit odd that the women's because it was called something something women's festival yeah every play. Yeah is written by a man and she said yeah I think that's a problem but I don't know what to do so I don't know what happens but sometimes that is the case I mean it's it's yes it's disappointing and yes it's annoying but you know it's not it's, it's really easy to say this but it, it's not personal that's that's the biggest problem as playwrights I think we all have is putting that rejection email aside and going you know what it's not personal it's just but I only really have a bigger problem with it if, if like I start going through the submission process and then at the end of it it's like You're, you must have these qualifications I'm like oh well tell me up front before I go yeah. through all this trouble <laughs> yeah I think yeah I just I think sometimes they always they are they ask too much as well you read some of the yeah. stipulations they have on what it has to be about how long it has to be what it has to be involved and you're like oh my god it's gonna it's gonna take me like three hours to write the blooming thing <laughs> and as somebody who reads a lot of plays or or have read a lot of plays for different companies mm. to select from um there's a, another frustration on that side of the fence is people submitting things that should not be submitted like if the company says a cast maximum cast of five don't send them your seven cast member play or stuff like that because it's just it's wasting time and resources and you're not going to get selected no matter how good your play is if they set that parameter you're just going to annoy them <laughs> so. yeah i think i think that there are a lot of like worthwhile like i think when susan was talking about different calls that are looking for plays by women playwrights or by older women playwrights kind of the whole kind of own voices side of things for stories. There are de definitely groups that are underrepresented, historically underrepresented, that need more exposure to their narratives and to those playwrights themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I wouldn't necessarily be someone who would say, oh, well, the problem is that there's too many specific things that are only asking for specific groups. So I think that those specific groups deserve to have mm -hmm. forums where their stories are going to, going to be given the attention and have the readership oh, yeah. that they, they should have. Mm -hmm. I think that what I run into or what I've run into more recently is like people that are putting out those calls are not necessarily super 
precise with what they're really looking for. What are you actually looking for? Are you looking for people who are underrepresented or are you looking for certain perspectives and you want to appear more inclusive to a, to another group that isn't necessarily included in the conversation all the time? Mm -hmm. And it makes some folks that should be eligible for those opportunities feel like they're going to assume something based on my name and they're going to assume something based on the content of my play that isn't true. And I think that we come back around to the whole who whose whose works are are actually being read and taken seriously in these conversations versus what do the theaters really want? What are the theaters trying what community are are those theaters serving? And I think mm -hmm. that sometimes that's very clear and sometimes it's not. Yeah, because there's definitely a difference between asking for, for example, women and non-binary playwrights versus mm -hmm. women and non-binary plays or, mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. topic. And uh, like one of the companies I was reading for recently, they were like, we're just not getting these people. We're getting these people writing in, but the, the plays are not about anything that we asked for. And I went back and I read the wording of the, the submission and it, and it sounded like they wanted those playwrights, but they actually wanted plays dealing with those yeah. areas of those people. So mm -hmm. um, they reworked it and then they, you know, got more submissions in, but um, you know, they went from having, I think, you know, 13 submissions to 213 submissions <laughs> because uh, it just, if you're in a company and you're looking for plays, you just have to be much more mm -hmm. specific and clear about, like you said, the, the community you're serving and what exactly you want to be submitted. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easier for us too, because I can look at it and it says women playwrights pass. I just go on to the next one. Mm -hmm. On a on a more kind of clinical basis, it could have entirely be to do with their business model. So they could have in their business model we have to have this many plays written by women, this many plays written by LGBTQ, this many, and, by, and that's the reason they have to have it that way. And again, it's not strictly speaking, I suppose, again, fair is the wrong word, but if that's the way their business model has been raised and that's the reason they're getting funding, that's the way it has to be, put quite, quite, quite cut and dry. Um, so Susan, final thought? I think uh, I think DC and others have have spoken it very well, uh, and that is to be specific. Hmm. If a theater company needs to have um, things met for whatever reason, for financing grants, whatever, uh, they need to be very specific. And even though it kind of drives us a little crazy, especially when they talk about the font size, <laughs> uh, um, but it oh. actually, yeah, but actually the more specific it is, the, the, I think then we can do it. We can handle that. Um, but it, it's when you're general or, you know, that, oh, it can be about it. Then you're kind of like fishing around going, well, do they really want this? Do they really want that? So that applies both to the people who are looking for the plays as well as those of us who are applying. Read mm -hmm. the specifics. Many of them say, if you have questions, fine, I do. If I have questions, I, I send it and I can get it answered and it solves a lot of problems and saves a lot of time. So again, you have to honor their, unless you wanna have a conversation or a dialogue, you usually have to honor what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And it, it it can, as DC says, you just go, okay, they're not interested in this. 
that aren't interested in this. I think you can always say, you know, I, I have six characters, but they're dead. The sixth one is dead. Does that count as you know, five characters? That's okay. That's fine. But you know, 27 characters for a two character play does not work. So our final question to all of you, um, if you could choose one element that makes great theater, what would it be? And we'll start with Sam. Sure. So I've been I've been thinking about this question, and I think something that, I mean, this could be kind of a cop out answer, but I think that there is this quality that we talk about a lot when we're evaluating plays that we like and the things that make it feel like this is a play of this quality of theatricality. And when you are sitting in a in a play and you're watching two characters talk or you see see the way that the, the play ends up playing out, um, I think that those moments that can't really be replicated in cinema or aren't aren't necessarily going to be the focus when you're reading a book, when you when you get those moments, whether it's a moment of communication of subtext through lighting design or the 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 scene of the play like the staging opens up in an interesting way those are those are things that i feel like when it couldn't have been in another medium or likely would not have worked as well in another medium i think that 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 to me feels like good theater angela um i think for great theater you need to touch people and that's both easy and hard to do and it's easy because at our core we're all emotional beings you know, sometimes it's a little bit deeper, but if I write about something that's, that I'm super passionate about, and I put that on stage, I'm going to touch somebody who uh, feels that too. So that's going to resonate. So we got to continue, even if we can see, Hey, there's way more opportunities. If I write about this, or I'm going to get more funding. If I write about that, or my theater tells me I should write more about this. We've got to write about what matters to us because if we're passionate, we're going to touch somebody else um, uh, who is who who has that same feeling and, and resonate with them. And that just makes great theater. Absolutely. Uh, DC. I mean, jumping off of both of their points <laughs> is um, the connection, the connection between the actors and the audience, the connection between the actors themselves, the connection between the playwright and the actors and the director and just how all of these different forces come together to create this one moment in time that will never be repeated that everybody is experiencing together as a unit. And like you said, I think somebody used the term magical and it, it is, it's absolutely magical and there's nothing else like it. And finally, Susan, if there's anything left to say. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it ties in with what everybody else has said. But for me, it's the element of surprise, whether it's something that's theatrical, whether it's something emotional or cerebral or something that is unknown. But it's the element of surprise as an audience member, as well as perhaps an epiphany experienced by one of the characters. But when it's experienced by the entire audience, that element of surprise, it's like this moment of, oh, wow, I didn't see that happening. I didn't see that coming or I didn't think I'd feel this way. Um, but that's, to me, what makes it uh, so wonderful. It's just to be surprised because, gosh, that's the best, I think. I'm 
<laughs> and on that wonderful ending we are uh officially out of time guys thank you so much for being here you've been utterly fabulous the four of you and that is it for another episode of The Panel Presents. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Angela, Susan, DC and Sam. And if you did, please feel free to let us know with a like, follow, comment or if you're feeling generous, you can buy us a pre-show cocktail on our Buy Me A Coffee page. I'll be back with another episode of The Panel Presents on the 4th of November and don't forget to join us again on the 15th of October when we continue Season 2 of Theatrical Shenanigans. In the meantime, though, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams. This is Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join me next time. Theatrical Shenanigans, part of an RFW scripts production. Found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Music is written and produced by Chris Cody.